Thank you for listening to a River Life Fellowship podcast. We're a church family in North Carolina with a vision for people to experience the grace of Jesus, be filled with the Father's love, and to release the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's this week's message from Mooresville. Uh, I'd like for you to turn, if you would, to Luke's Gospel in chapter 5. Luke's Gospel in chapter 5. And we're going to be reading a passage of Scripture that I'm sure is very familiar to most of you. But it is my belief and my hope that as we look at this text that we've read so many times, that there will be something that he would say to us afresh. Luke chapter 5, verse 1, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Jacinaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and have taken nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their nets or their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Uh, I want to talk to you about being in over your head. Now, usually when we hear that particular phrase used, being in over our head, it has somewhat of a negative connotation to it, doesn't it? It's um, somewhat like when somebody is asked a question that they're not equipped to answer, they will say, well, that's above my pay grade. Um, I've been intrigued by what T.S. Eliot, the poet, says about being in over your head. He says, it's not until you get in over your head that you ever can find out how tall you are. Now, that may be more profound than we realize. Elliot is also a man who said it's not until we risk going too far that we will ever discover how far we can go. And so I, I think that this passage of Scripture that I just read to you absolutely throbs with the possibility, not the threat of, but the possibility of getting in over our head. This is not the first time that Peter has had an encounter with Jesus. If you glance back in chapter 4, 
you'll see that he had been at Peter's house and healed his mother-in-law. But now here Jesus is in pursuit of him. I think sometimes we obsess over our lack of interest or our lack of desire to pursue God and forget that he has always been the pursuer. Maybe that would be encouraging to someone who right now your relationship with him seems rather lackluster. I want, I want to assure you that when you are totally unconscious of him, when you are totally unaware of him, which, by the way, as Augustine said, he is more conscious of you than you are of yourself. Uh, the other morning, I got up very early uh, before the sun came up, and as I opened my eyes and I threw my legs out across the edge of the bed, I had this sense that he had been hovering there all night long, waiting on me to open my eyes. And he restrained me from reaching for my phone, which I compulsively do. Now, don't look at me like that now. <laughs> and it was almost as if he was waiting to say something to me. I, I think sometimes we don't realize just how much he pursues us, as he did Peter here in this passage of Scripture. I'm not sure Peter was in any way, shape, or form aware of this life-altering moment that was getting ready to take place. He'd met this rabbi maybe the day before, and he had seen what he was capable of doing. But you got to remember in this moment that Peter did not know that he was going to become a part of this rabbi's entourage. He didn't know that he was going to be selected. There was something that was very unique about it, and as much as that Peter was, he knew in the culture that usually rabbis didn't choose their followers. The followers chose their rabbis. Remember, Jesus said, it's not you that have chosen me, but I have chosen you. So there had to be something that he was considering in this moment as to why is he here and why is he here now. I think we don't realize sometimes that God tends to come to us disguised as our own life, that he is coming in unexpected ways, in unexpected places, but remembering that he is always in relentless pursuit. There are ways when God breaks into our life, even when life seems to be going on. It's like the young man well, I called him a young man. He may not be young, but he looked young to me who was up here earlier and said that Jesus was in the room with the express purpose of arresting people. I like that. I really do. You know, Paul said, I press toward the mark of the high calling of God and is in Christ Jesus that I might apprehend that for which I was apprehended. <laughs> Isn't that, isn't that interesting language that, I mean, he's reflecting back on his Damascus Road experience, and he said, you know, he apprehended me then. He arrested me then, and it's like he arrested me, and he decided to flee the scene of the arrest, and I've all my life been in pursuit of trying to apprehend that for which I was apprehended. Does that resonate with anybody? I mean, I've been at this 45 years, and I'm still trying to pursue why I was arrested. 
So this scenario is really significant because it shows us how God just keeps showing up. He's relentless in his pursuit. And I don't know whether you noticed, and I think it's of particular importance, that there were two boats that are identified by Luke in this chapter. And when Jesus comes walking up there on the shore, he's being pressed by the crowds as he was often, and pressed so until there was no way for him to escape. He backs into the boat. Even though he sees two boats, he chooses only one of them. Now, the reason why I think that that is really significant is because the people in the other boat did not have any clue whatsoever as to what was going to happen, and they thought that they were going to be excluded from it. You know, there's, there's really something about watching God's selection process when he chooses people around you and he seems to overlook you that causes you to have this sense of unimportance. I mean, we, we live in a world of people that are larger than life, that have these massive personas, and we can feel, pardon the pun, but we can feel like a very small fish in a big pond. And I'm sure, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd try to enter into the psyche of these other people in the boat. They're looking at Jesus. Hey, what about us? Why didn't you choose us? Uh, can I be vulnerable with you and tell you that there have been a number of times in my life when I've watched the Lord select certain people, and here's where I'm going to be very vulnerable. I've seen him select people that I didn't feel like were more qualified than I am. Is that so much hubris or pride? Uh, you know, I, I look and I'm thinking, uh, you know, I've got more going on than that person. Why did you choose them? I think sometimes when that happens, as we'll look at even more in, in greater depth here in a few minutes is that he is challenging you to see if you are going to continue to follow him even when he doesn't choose you. In the last few months, uh, I have been challenged with that, and I have had to answer the very hard questions. If he decided, after all these years, that I was no longer useful in this way, because we derive so much of our identity from the way he uses us. Which, by the way, God doesn't use people anyway. I mean, how many times have you prayed sincerely, as I have, and I've stopped praying this way, just use me, would you please use me to do something great? Which really is a revelation to me about me that causes me to understand that really what I want is for him to do something great and significant in me rather than me continuing to follow him just for who he is. I mean, Jesus even confronted that attitude on one occasion when he turned around and he looked at his followers and he said, are you following me for the loaves and the fishes? So I guess the real provocative question here is would I continue to follow him would I continue to follow him if he never answered another prayer? Uh, maybe I should not ask painful questions like that. But would I follow him if I never saw another miracle? 
Would I follow him if he never answered another prayer? You see, in the selection process, I don't believe that God chooses us because we're special. We become special because he chose us. And he said here, in keeping with what I told you I was going to talk about, being in over our heads, he tells them to launch out into the deep. Uh, Obviously, Peter is protesting because here is a rabbi trying to tell him about his trade. He'd grown up on this particular body of water. He understood the tides. He understood the thermals. Do you, you fishermen know what I'm talking about when I talk about thermals because there's certain temperatures in the water where the fish will go to, certain depths that they'll go to. And here's this rabbi trying to tell him how to do his job. We've toiled all night and we've taken nothing. And usually that's what happens is that we have to get to the point where we get to the end of what we know. Because when you get to the end of what you know, there's, I promise, there's where you will find God. So when they go out into the deep, I see at least two dimensions of this depth that they're called out into. The first that they're called into is the depth of mystery. Again, you've got to remember, Peter has no idea whatsoever the next three and a half years what they're going to hold. He doesn't know about his highs and his lows. He, he has no idea as to how he's going to peak and valley, that he will walk on water. What, what if Jesus had told him in that moment that in the months to come, you are going to be the one who is going to have, you, you this are going to be the single one of all my students, my disciples, that is going to have the revelation of who I truly am. But you're also going to egregiously deny me. Peter, you're going to walk on water. Peter, uh, eventually, you're going to stand up in about three and a half to four years in front of 3,000 people and you are going to preach about the inauguration of the kingdom of God in Acts chapter 2. But he didn't know that, did he? He didn't know any of that. So he's calling him into the depth of mystery. I've talked about mystery here before, but I think it it bears repeating. You know, there's... There's something about embracing mystery that many of us, we have an aversion for. Ambiguity is not something that we have much tolerance for. We are slaves to clarity. And the reason being is because of our need for control. I'm convinced that many people never really learn anything because they seem to understand everything way too soon. So he's calling them into the depths of mystery. And the questions that he had in that moment and the questions that would come in the months to come, uh, Jesus would not give satisfactory explanations for. You know, we have to come to the point in following him, getting out over our head that we realize 
that he is under no obligation to give us the explanations that we demand. Because even if he did explain to you the scope of everything that he was doing, it still wouldn't satisfy you. The mind has this insatiable need to know, doesn't it? And unfortunately, in American Christianity, we have reduced faith to this demand of wanting to know, which was the original sin that was committed by Adam and Eve. This demand to know. I've said it here, I'm sure, before, but it fits again very appropriately here that the opposite of faith is not doubt, it's certainty. And so they're being called into the depth of mystery, and they're also being called into the depth of suffering. Again, Peter did not realize what was before him. He didn't realize the rejection, the betrayal, the misunderstanding. But it was in those depths that he would become more acquainted with himself and with God. Maybe you've heard the cautionary tale that I grew up hearing in my upbringing in church. That sin will take you further than you want to go. Are you remembering this? You know, the preacher in a lather, almost screaming at us in a threatening tone, sin will take you further than you want to go. Make you stay longer than you want to stay and make you pay more than you want to pay. You've heard that? A few of you have. Well, can I tell you something? I found the same thing to be true of this journey of faith I've been on. I didn't sign up for this. How many times have you said that? This is not what I signed up for. It's about getting in over your head. And remember the other boat that I haven't forgotten, even though you probably have. They're watching all of this unfold, and they have no idea of how they're going to be incorporated into the story. And this is something really important for you to get, and uh, it's something that I'm working on right now with a new book I'm writing that has to do with understanding our individualistic and isolated perception of our own life. One great thinker said that we have to see what he describes as a cosmic egg. Now, don't let that throw you off. If you can visualize this, there is your story, your own narrative of your story. Um, What happens to you is not necessarily the real experience as much as the way you interpret the experience. What happens to you is not really the experience, it's the way you interpret the experience. So it's very possible to live this very introverted, and when I use the word introverted, you're thinking about people that uh, are not very social or not very engaged. No, no, all of you are introverted in different ways. You're living in, how many times have you said this about someone that's maybe on the verge of narcissism. They live in their own little world. 
So there's your story, but then there's a bigger story around that. There's our story that needs to be integrated with it. But bigger than that is the story. The story that he is narrating. And so this other boat doesn't realize that they are going to be beckoned to come help with this situation. You see, I, I, just, I just have this sense that whenever jealousy, and it will, it's a human emotion, as long as you've got a pulse, you're, you are, you're not immune to it. That sometimes that what happens in other people's lives, as it did in this particular text, is God is allowing jealousy to manifest, but he doesn't want you to be jealous of them, but jealous for it. Not jealous of what's happening, but jealous for what is happening. Their nets are beginning to burst. They're about to break. Peter is standing knee-deep in flopping ship, uh, uh, fish. I said a flopping ship, didn't I? <laughs> Freudian slip. He's standing knee-deep in flopping fish. And what's his response? Depart from me. I mean, this is, uh, this is typical of Peter. I mean, he had foot and mouth disease, you know? His mouth was shaped like a foot. And he was adept at putting his foot in there regularly, wasn't he? He's missing the miracle because he's obsessed with his own inadequacy. Brennan Manning uh, tells a story about um, this that I think is very appropriate. He, he, he talks about how that um, he was bemoaning his inadequacy to God and what a failure he was and what a disappointment he was. He tells God as he's praying, con- confessing what a failure is, and God's broke the silence, the awkward silence, and said to Manning, you're much more of a failure than you realize, and I expect more failure from you than you could ever expect from yourself, and I'm still calling you. I'm still calling you. And so what does Jesus do? He ignores that altogether, doesn't he? And he begins to talk to him about his future. Doesn't talk about, you know what? I don't think it was just that that moment. I think Peter... um, was in that split second, you know how the mind works. I mean, it can just flash through so many different moments that we thought were defining moments. And there he is, he's gripped in that moment and he's thinking about all the things that he'd failed in doing and he's, he's trying somehow to persuade Jesus that he'd made a mistake. But then something interesting happens is that Jesus asked him, you know, to become fishers of men. He's asking to, for him to walk away from the miracle that he just performed. That's why I said a moment ago, would you keep following him? Would you keep going out over your head if he didn't answer another prayer? 
if he didn't give you another prophetic word, if he, you know, you just collapse before him and, and you're, you feel unworthy, would you keep following him? I, I don't know about you, but I am now more than ever before in over my head. And I, th- I think that's where all of us really need to be. I think that's where he led Peter. I think that's where he is leading all of us. Now, fast forward. You go over to John 21. You get to John 21, and isn't it interesting that Jesus finds Peter at very possibly the same place that this had happened? Peter had, as many of us, he had overpromised and underdelivered just days before. I know everybody else is going to forsake you, but I'm not. How many? How many of you are guilty of that, of overpromising and underdelivering, in an attempt to impress him with your promises? We we just need to be reminded regularly that our relationship with God has never been based on the many promises that we've made to him, but on the singular promise that he's made to us, and that is he will never leave us or forsake us. See, God doesn't need you to think less of yourself. That's not humility. He doesn't need for you to remind him of what you think you're not. He needs to, for you to experience an awakening like he did, like Peter did early on this morning in John 21. The sun is just coming up on the Sea of Galilee. Once again, they'd been fishing all night long and had taken nothing. It's interesting, isn't it, how this comes full circle. And all of you, I, I, I won't belabor the point and go into all the details of that, but Peter, once again, isn't he, is self-absorbed, He's so obsessed with this introspection. He looks out, though, in the early morning light, and he sees the silhouette of a man. He can't make him out at first. All he can see is a fire that is burning, and he can smell the whiff of freshly baking fish. If it was in the south, they'd be fried, but anyway... He can, smell, he can smell fish. He can't see it, but he can sense it. He's not sure as to who that is because he's tried to distance himself as much as he possibly can because of his abject failure that took place in Jerusalem. But he didn't realize. He'd forgotten. And news probably hadn't gotten to him quite yet that he'd told, Jesus had told the disciples, uh, Go tell the disciples and Peter, I'll meet them in Galilee. There I'm going to arrest him again. Thank you. So he looks up as they are pulling their nets in that are cluttered with debris, dragging the bottom, and they're trying to untangle these nets there in John 21, just like 
was happening in Luke 5. And there's not even a minnow in the net. And when they finally heave it up after it, it back into the boat, you can imagine the weight of these nets, right? They are waterlogged and, again, cluttered with debris and tangled, and their muscles are aching, their hamstrings are taut, their biceps are aching, and when they finally heave it up over the edge of the boat, they look, I can't quite make that out. I smell fish. Who is that? It was John who was first to recognize him, remember? When John said, it's the Lord, look at what Peter does this time. I mean, he leaps over the bow of the boat to swim in, right? You see, in that restoration moment, so beautiful. I, I, I think it's where we find all of ourselves. You know, I don't, I try not to read the Bible, you know, just objectively. I try to read it as subjectively as I possibly can and find myself there. I mean, Usually, if you are reading any passages of Scripture, even if it's the woman who is taken in the act of adultery and who is thrown at the feet of Jesus, and you have any sense of judgmentalism toward her, you've missed the point altogether. It should cause you to read it and feel mercy for her because you need mercy yourself. You say, oh, well, I've never done something so terrible. I've never lived promiscuously. It doesn't make any difference You're looking at it wrong altogether. And usually the obvious meaning of the text is very seldom the real meaning of the text. So I see myself there early that morning. Uh, I, I recognize that I have exhausted myself and I'm in over my head and I'm looking and wondering if that's him, and wondering why would he even be looking for me. But there he is again and again, and you know the exchange that takes place. For every denial of Jesus, Jesus continues to reaffirm him. I'll close with this. When I first started on this journey, I didn't know what I didn't know. And it's a good thing I didn't know. Anybody relate to that? I was young and dumb, like most. I didn't know that to be old is to be wise, but that you first had to be young and stupid. No offense to the younger ones here. And I did learn over time that the challenges in the beginning were minuscule compared to what would come. I mean, I really think, and many of you I'm sure would relate to this, had I known the specifics of my assignment, the many twists and turns, the extreme highs and lows, I would have never signed up. Don't look at me self-righteously. I came to understand, even though it sounds uh, trite, that the lessons I've learned would never be learned in a course, but on a course. I came to understand that with God, the closest distance between two points has never been a straight line. It's very circuitous. I came to understand that there were no maps, that 
in following him. And getting in over my head meant that I was going to go beyond whatever parameters that were comfortable for me. But thank God, by his grace, I've continued to follow. I mean, I would have preferred a map. But he insists on staying focused on what I'm becoming instead of where I'm going. So again, there's a lot I didn't know in the beginning. There's still a lot I don't know. But what I do know is that he was there in the beginning. He's here right now in the middle. And he'll be there in the end. Because he declares the end from the beginning. Some of you here this morning, I know that you're, you're probably really in over your head as I've described. And I came upon a prayer that I want to share with you. You know, sometimes uh, I think especially uh, with we charismatics, we, uh, we feel like that it's inappropriate for us to pray something that is pre-written. Um, well, you just need to go ahead and remove the Psalms from your Bible. Because that's essentially what it's there for. It may come as a surprise to you, being as verbose as I am, that I come to many places where I am without words. I ask him just to turn the pages of my heart when I can't somehow summon the language. I know what Romans says, that the Holy Spirit intercedes through us and groanings that cannot be uttered. But I, I came upon something the other day um, because I felt like I was in over my head that Thomas Merton, this great Catholic mystic, wrote. See if this, see if this sounds familiar to anybody. He said, my Lord, God, I have no idea where I'm going. That's a good prayer. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I actually am doing so. That's pretty freeing, isn't it? But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing, I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Thank you for listening to a River Life Fellowship podcast. To get more information, check out riverlifefellowship.com.